Good evening, and welcome to the February 2024 edition of Outbeat News in Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, marriage equality is back in the news, and this November, voters in California will be asked the question again, should the California state constitution define marriage as being only between one man and one woman? That language still exists in our constitution from Proposition 8, and voters will be asked if it should be removed. Tonight, we're going to talk with Lex Lazar. He's an activist and politician who is working on this issue. And also, last month, Pope Francis issued a directive saying that the Catholic Church can now bless same-sex couples and their relationships. But what exactly does this mean? In the second part of our hour, Robert Schein from New Ways Ministry joins us to explain. So stay with us. It's all coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, February 25th, 2024. I love to change the This is Greg Morali with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of February 25th, 2024. Greece has become the first majority Orthodox country to legalize marriage equality as the Hellenic Parliament voted for the marriage equality bill in a 176-76 to vote last week. The law allows same-sex couples to adopt children. Prime Minister Kairikos Mitsotakis said the law would boldly abolish serious inequalities. Many of his own party members abstained or voted against the bill, but it passed with support from left-wing party members. Still, the Belia of Rainbow Families told Reuters, quote, This is a day of joy. It's a very important step for human rights and a very important step for equality, as well as an important step for Greek society, end quote. Opponents of the bill cited religious reasons, including former Prime Minister Anthonis Samaras. He said, quote, The marriage of same-sex couples is not a human right, end quote. Civil unions have been legal for same-sex couples in Greece since 2015, and in 2017, the country allowed transgender people to correct their legal genders without having to get surgery or sterilization. The bill that was just passed doesn't allow same-sex couples to get help from surrogates, but children born from surrogates abroad are recognized in Greece. And here in the United States, Vice President Kamala Harris has been part of history several times. She's not just the first female and first black second-in-command, But 20 years ago, during San Francisco's Winter of Love in 2004, she was among the first government officials to perform same-sex weddings. And she did it on Valentine's Day. Now, 20 years later, she was reunited with the loving couple in a FaceTime conversation to help them celebrate their wedding anniversary. Then Mayor Gavin Newsom's unprecedented decision to allow gay and lesbian couples to marry in the city caused an upheaval in California. It lasted for 29 days before the state Supreme Court shut it down and nullified all of the 4,000 weddings that had taken place. Harris, then district attorney in San Francisco, was one of the officiants. Bradley Witherspoon and Raymond Caboni were one of the couples. Caboni said, quote, It was a very emotional day, and I remember crying and looking over and seeing Kamala crying and hugging each other at the end of it. The couple had been together for 20 years before they married in 2004. They met in a line at McDonald's. Witherspoon asked Caboni if he could sit with him, and they've been loving each other ever since. While their 2004 marriage was nullified, they were remarried 10 years later when it became legal again. Then, as California's Attorney General Harris had refused to defend the state's ban on same-sex marriage and perform some of the state's first legal weddings. And after years of pushing by queer activists, the United States Census Bureau will finally begin trying to include questions about sexual orientation and gender identity for its American Community Survey this year. Currently, the survey, the Bureau's largest one, only includes questions about same-sex couples who are married or living together. 
as the Associated Press notes, that only accounts for an estimated one-sixth of the country's LGBTQ population and leaves out transgender people and those who are single or do not live with their parents. Surveys like this one are key to helping the government determine what kind of public assistance certain communities need. In September, the Census Bureau requested permission from the administration of President Joe Biden to begin including questions about sexual orientation and gender identity for people ages 15 and older. In a notice published to the Federal Register, the Bureau explained that such questions would help determine equal employment and civil rights enforcement. Participants in the survey will have the option to answer the questions online, by mail, over the phone, or in an in-person interview. And here locally, the SPAR Center in Marin County announced its closure due to ongoing financial difficulties. The announcement came from Joe Tui and Amy Schroeder, executive director and chair of the board of directors. They said that it's with a heavy heart that we share the news that effective today, that was last week, due to ongoing financial difficulties, the SPAR Center has indefinitely suspended all programs. Along with the executive director, the board of directors has made the difficult decision to lay off most of the staff. They're a dedicated and passionate group who together embark on an incredible journey to serve the LGBTQ plus and HIV communities in Marin County. They have our deepest gratitude for their commitment to SPAR Center's mission and clients. The Ryan White HIV services team will remain in place for the next week to transition clients to the county of Marin for continued care and support. The group went on to talk about some of the conversations taking place now with community partners about how to ensure the viability of SPAR Center programs and services moving forward. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. Our first guest tonight is Alex Lex Lazar. He's the former aide to San Francisco Mayor London Breed and Congress member Nancy Pelosi. He's here tonight to talk about the critical ballot initiative coming up for us to vote on this November that seeks to remove the language added by Proposition 8 back in 2008 that defines marriage as being between only one man and one woman. And I'll tell you, it's not a slam dunk that this will pass. It could even backfire on us. Lex, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, We appreciate your time and your expertise. You've got a lot of history with uh, the marriage equality issue, uh, period, but especially here in California. But... You know, before we get talking about Assembly Resolution 5 and what's happening this November uh, yeah. on the ballot, tell us about yourself and how did you get into this issue? Sure, sure. Well, most recently, um, I ran for the California State Assembly here in Sacramento, where I live. So um, the seat opened up when Assemblymember Kevin McCarty decided to go and run for mayor. Um, and previous to uh, my role right now, so right now I work at Google. I'm an administrative business partner. And um, and I go to the Bay Area a couple of times a week. I do a super commute. But during the pandemic, I was able to buy a house out here. Good but previous you. to that, um, I was based in San Francisco. I lived on Six and Howard, like right in the thick of it. Uh, I worked for government there. So I worked for Mayor London Breed as her director of neighborhood services in 2018 when she just began her term. So I was there during the transition from Mayor Lee passing away and then right. um, Mayor Breed um, taking the, the role of mayor, uh, being elected mayor. So um, before that, I worked for Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi and that that's where I worked for about eight years in her San Francisco district office. So I really had a uh, front row seat to, to marriage equality and everything that we went through the past decade to get where we are now. And hopefully we don't go back to where we were in the past. Yeah, boy, that's for sure. Has politics always sort of been in your blood? Yes. Uh, you know, I was raised in a, a Chicano household. Well, 
I'm, I identify as Chicano. My, my mother and my uh, sisters came from Mexico. My dad came from Texas. So, uh, you know, it was always really important to be active, to be active about what is happening in our community because my sisters and my mother benefited from, strangely enough, Ronald Reagan and, and, and you know, being able to, to become citizens and find a pathway there. So uh, it was very important uh, for them being uh, immigrants to the United States to be uh, actively aware of what was happening in government. And since I was a little kid, I, I was really just into it. And I went through the whole student body president thing when I was a, in high school. So it's always been part of me. That's awesome. Well, you know, the point tonight is to give our listeners a little bit of history about marriage equality in California and to talk about why Assembly Resolution 5 and this vote that is going to be on the ballot in November is so critically important so that we don't sort of botch it up as we did with Proposition 8. Right. Um, and we can talk definitely more about that for sure. But, you know, as I think about the history of marriage in California, it goes back a long ways. The first official vote sort of came with Prop 22 back in 2000. Talk a little bit about that. What was that proposition all about and what did it do? So, uh, so in regards to the prop- Proposition 22, this act added into uh, Section 308.5 of the Family Code. And that now reads that marriage is only or only marriage between a man and a woman is valid or recognized in California. That was a mouthful. Um, it, it was a mouthful. And, and this act was, was, uh, was put into place by Senator William Pete Knight, who um, through the initiative process was able to get onto the ballot in 2000, uh, this, this proposition, uh, which passed with 61% of the vote. And um, it's just one of these, these these tough situations where the senator himself had an LGBT son who ended mm. up getting married in 2004. He had a younger brother who, who passed away of AIDS-related complications. And it's just, in my experience, it's been that, that conservative folks um, like Anita Bryan over in, in, in Florida mm-hmm. back in the day, mm-hmm. um, you know, all these villains that come up, they, Senator Briggs here in California, they, they seem to hate what's closest to them. And maybe seeing a, a gay son and seeing a gay brother he just wanted to somehow stamp that out for everyone in the future. And here we are. Yeah. With that still in the family code. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of challenging about California. Maybe it's an opportunity, I suppose. But these initiatives, uh, we've right. seen them come up before. And these voter initiatives, some of them just seem blatantly unconstitutional from the very beginning. I'm thinking back to Prop 187, the one that Right. prohibited, you know, use of government Wilson. funds for folks who weren't documented here. And of course, the Supreme right. Court later threw it out. But it does give anybody with even the most conservative and hateful ideas the chance to put something before the voters. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, you know, and you think that, that here we are in California, such a liberal bastion. And that, that cannot be the case. You know, we, we are a big state with different parts that are very conservative uh, within very uh, municipal, you know, like jurisdiction here in Sacramento. You know, you go a little north of me, and you're in a really red territory. So, oh, yeah. yeah, it's dangerous. It is, and and this is exactly why people need to pay attention, because I don't think enough people paid attention back when Prop 8 passed. Um, I'm probably going to end up saying that more than once tonight. That's good. So you mentioned, yeah, you bet. You mentioned uh, 2004, uh, then Gavin, Mayor Newsom, or something yeah. like that. You mentioned 2004, and then Mayor Gavin Newsom, uh, I think, really got the ball rolling when he sort of stepped out and said, hey, I think it's unconstitutional that we don't allow same-sex couples to marry. And he ordered the city clerk to issue marriage licenses. What did you think about that sort of 
Uh, yeah. Unconventional act. Yeah. Well, I was about 25 then. Um, I came out of the closet when I was like my early 20s, I think. You know, I, I always knew I was gay, but, but I officially came out in my early 20s when I went off to Cal State LA and I came back. So um, I was back in, in the Bay Area working with Dale. Uh, I ended up, uh, I think I was managing a, an auto zone at that point, around 2004, 2003. And, uh, and I remember, you know, watching on TV these marriages. It was a, it was a big deal, right? Like yeah. all of a sudden you see San Francisco City Hall, you can see the lines all lined up, and you can see the grainy footage today on YouTube. And it was extremely powerful because not only it showed me that there were people like me nearby, but that we were fighting for our rights and getting uh, progress. We were, we were actually making some kind of change by going out of the box. You know, what, what, what now Governor Newsom did back then was, again, very, very risky. And he was looked down upon by... President Obama back in the day said Senator Obama, Senator Feinstein, you know, they looked at that as like, how, how could you dare do that? You're going to bring a whole party down. But I thought it was the most important thing he could do then for, for myself and, and for just for justice in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly haven't had the chance to talk to him about this, but, you know, there's a there's a big piece of me that thinks that he knew he knew by doing this that this would start the legal battle that ultimately we won. Do you think right. that was in his mind, or did he just have a warm heart for same-sex couples? You know, um, as someone who used to work for a mayor of San Francisco, I know that you cannot stand in that room 200 of City Hall and not really understand the power that you have to make change. Yeah. You know, you, you, you look across the city from, from that window, and then it, it's hard not to, as a staffer, as a mayor, as whoever, to think about what can I do best in this position that I have? And yeah, that governor, uh, then uh, Mayor Newsom must have been able to look out and, and, and understand that if I, if I make this change, if I make this risk here, it, it may in fact cause a, a, a larger movement. It's happened before. It happened with uh, medical marijuana in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. You know, San Francisco has always been a place where you kind of run these trial balloons of, of policy. Will they work or will they not? And so I do believe that, that, that he put his, a stake in the ground and really hasn't changed much since then. So he really hasn't wavered from being able to be like, I'm just going to go out there and be bold, you know, and, and do uh, it. And just do it. Yeah. So that did start the legal battle challenging Prop 22. Right. So it challenged the language in the family code that you described earlier. Do you remember where you were when the Supreme Court, state Supreme Court ruled that Prop 22 was unconstitutional? Yes. So by, by then, you know, I had decided to go back to school. I decided to go back to De Anza Community College and get my degree and get on that path back to uh, getting you know in, into government because that's really where you can make change. And so um, I was trying to figure out uh, if I wanted to go into government and politics. And so this, you know, handsome senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, was ready for president. And I was like, well, let me go ahead and, and, and get on that train and see what I can do to help this guy move forward. Because I, too, a uh, uh, handsome man from a, from a, a, a unconventional background, getting into politics, I thought that was very, very, very uh, relevant. Um, so what ended up happening is that during that time, while I was working for the campaign, is when uh, when it was declared unconstitutional. And then we go back to the the, the, the marriages again and back to the buzz of 2004 and, and getting things uh, getting things moving Um there was a bit of a, a fresh, a breath of fresh air during that time, right? Because we were in the, the, the Obama world and, and heading towards a, um, towards that November. But in the meantime, you have this thing simmering, right? Where where it was a hornet's nest that, that once this activity, activity, quote unquote, the marriages re resumed, all of a sudden those behind the scenes that wanted to stop it started moving those pieces even quicker. And that's how we get to the, yeah. the Genesis of Prop 8. Well, exactly. I, I distinctly remember the day I was sitting on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court because I happened to be in D.C. at the time. 
and and I knew the the announcement was going to be made. They, there was some some pre announcements that at such and such an hour it was going to be made. So I thought, well, there's no better place in D.C. to hear that announcement than sitting on the steps of the court. Yeah. Um, but I also knew in the back of my mind that yet there was this other potential voter initiative that was looming. I, obviously, the proponents of Proposition Eight knew that the Supreme Court was going to rule in our favor. Um, and so where did you first hear about Prop 8 and what were your thoughts, especially with who was funding it? Right. Um, so I was raised Catholic um, and, you know, went through 12 years of Catholic school, went through mm -hmm. that whole gauntlet. And I was always very outspoken to them. I was oh, to, to my teachers, to, to, to priests, and I would ask them the tough questions. And uh, I was always willing to, to, to be like, well, there, never in the Bible does it say anything about any same-sex relations about any sort. So I don't know why you're, you're all concerned about these kind of things. And it was a small Catholic school, so it really wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, not big of a deal, but it, it, it wasn't a big deal for me to, to be able to do that. I, I was able to challenge that. So when Prop 8 started looming forward, it was the, the Mormons who really were on my radar because of the money that they have and because of the, the person power that they have of being able to go out there and knock on doors. What was, um, the, I think for, for me, the first thing that struck me with Prop 8 was their cute little yellow sign with a little sketchy family of like a, a two people yeah. holding hands and a tiny little kid. And it was, they were so tricky when it came down to that because they made it seem as if you were going to vote to enshrine marriage equality versus to, to, to make sure that it, it wasn't. Um, and, Again, being raised Catholic, I, I knew how to spot these things, you know, Scientologists, Mormons, you know, the, the, these, the, these institutions are very quick to defend their structures of power. And so I've always had my eyes on them. And, and so, yes, so that's what I did see. Yeah. Well, I think the thing about Prop 8 that, that surprised me was the lack of reaction from our own gay community to it. Uh, it was it was looming out there, and the Prop Eight. You're you're right. The proponents had a lot of advertising, and it, the wording of that proposition was not in our favor because it said vote yes, and most people associate yes with with giving or getting something. Right. Uh, but we just we just sort of sat back on our heels. Were you surprised that it passed? Um, I wasn't surprised, and I, I wasn't surprised because. As I mentioned before, you know, I, I know how much power institutions have when they really get their minds to it, you know, and especially when it, came, when it comes down to government. I was at, uh, you know, I was going through De Anza College at that time. I was preparing to go to San Francisco State. So politics was on my mind every day all the time. So it wasn't a surprise to me. It was very much of a... At that point, you really, it was very difficult to shift resources, right? Because that all happened in, in, in one year where, as I mentioned before, Barack Obama was going to be on the ballot, ballot in November. I think everybody thought that everything was going to be okay after that, including LGBT people. So it was very much of a, okay, well, let's just, let's just you know, ride until November. But these things happen quick. And what I mean is, is, is mobilizations happen quick. We, we were talking um, later on about, about AR5 and that's why we have to be aware of these kind of things, because behind the scenes, you're always going to have people lining up dollars, really, and then people power to, to combat these rights. Yeah, that's absolutely for sure. So Prop 8 passes. We're, we're both celebrating Barack Obama's election into office, but also mourning our own losses because marriage equality came to a screeching halt here in California. Right. Uh, and then the American Foundation for Equal Rights emerges and challenges Prop 8. Yeah. In, a, in a really brilliant uh, campaign, we had uh, Ted Olson and David Boyce on our show years ago, 
and both couples, uh, both sets of plaintiffs in it to talk about that that piece. Uh, and listeners can go, go back and listen to that on our website at outbeatnews.com. Just search for those names. But yeah. for you in that time, a young gay man and going to school and pursuing politics, what was it like for you to watch that whole process unfold, the whole challenge to Prop 8? Right. Well, that was actually very convenient because by then I had already graduated uh, Deanza College. I had moved to San Francisco. I interned for, for Nancy Pelosi when I was uh, finishing up San Francisco State, and then I ended up working for her not about eight months after I graduated. So by then, it was very front and center. And just to, to give listeners an idea about a congressional district office, in the district office, you work on constituent services. So people that are having problems with Social Security or Medicare, they call your office and you try to figure out you know, what, what can be done there. Um, also community events. So, so that the, the district office is the on the ground um, uh, representation of the, of the member of Congress in the, in the community. So um, as working in the office, uh, we were very in, uh, aware of what was happening through the, the court system. Uh, earlier, I was looking at, at, uh, at my pictures for back in the day. And there were times when we had uh, press conferences at San Francisco City Hall with like Dennis Herrera, who was the city attorney, uh, who's now... Uh, Kamala Harris was now vice president uh, there, you know, as we went through the steps, right? So 2012 is when the uh, the Supreme Court decided to, to actually hear the, the decision. Um, I became more active in the San Francisco community in addition to my day job during the Congress. Uh, in the evenings, I would um, be part of the San Francisco Human Rights LGBT Advisory Committee. It's a, lot, a big mouthful, but this is also enshrined in the... the uh, the San Francisco uh, City Charter that the, the city needs to have an advisory committee for LGBT people uh, for policy wise. So again, my, my during the day I'm doing uh, I'm doing the constituent services. At night I'm focusing again on, on these issues. And we were again front 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 and center when it came down to to these uh, decisions as they as they came into play. Uh, there's a, a video I have from 2013 where you have uh, now Governor Newsom coming down the staircase with with former Mayor Ed Lee and um, and one of I think it was a uh, is it Del Martin? I think Phyllis Lyons, yeah, yep. Phyllis Lyons, right? So, so Phyllis was still still around during that that time. There she was walking down with, with Mayor Lee, uh, and you know uh, a bunch of politicals who are now in, in higher office here in California. It was very exciting to be part of that front row because not only did we see what was happening policy wise, but then we got to see the action. You know, then we got to see the energy of of the fact that that we had we had. Um, got up against these systems and won again and again and again. It, it, it was it was uh, it, it was it was great. Yeah, and that Prop Eight process was not just a simple hearing in front of a federal judge. Uh, right. Judge Von Walker really made the brilliant decision to hold a full trial on the issue of marriage equality and to hear all of the witness testimony, um, and then evaluate it. And he wrote uh, 136 pages, I think it was. 136-page decision really dissecting every element of marriage equality. It was brilliant in my mind. I remember reading it. Uh, what role did you think that decision played then in other states and in other courts? Yeah. Uh, well, take a look at, at uh, the way that Judge Walker reacted to, uh, to when the uh, court concluded. So he, when he really kind of nailed upon was that the court concluded the Supreme Court, he concluded that the Supreme Court's conservative justices, that they would avoid uh, a direct ruling on same-sex marriage because they didn't have enough votes to 
to go their way. But that ended up knocking it back to the states, right? So in places where there are friendly policies for LGBT people, it really kind of provided a roadmap as to how to, to, to either fix things in their own state codes or charters or so forth, um, or, you know, or just in, in enhance those rights in their own jurisdictions. But also in those like Texas and those, those like places that are not as friendly, also kind of showed where the holes in the armor are. And, and they were able to fortify how to, you know, make things much more conservative in their jurisdiction as well. So, you know, along with every good, there, there comes a, a, a reaction. And, and so in some places, yeah, it, it, gave, it gave more motivation to, to enshrine rights, but in others, it gave more motivation to, to stamp them down. Well, I think one of the mi- real misnomers about Judge Walker's decision is that it didn't fix the problem that Prop 8 created. Uh, what exactly was the impact of Walker's decision, what what did it actually do? Did it remove the language from the Constitution? No, the language remains in the Constitution, and, and there it is, like a you know, like a scar uh, on on our face in regards to to you look in the mirror every day and, and you see this uh, this language that's still there. The only reason why individuals can get married here is because federally, you know, that, that there's been a decision to 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 make it proper to make it uh, a, a legal right that as we know, is the major thing that's in danger. We had propos- we had uh, Roe versus Wade that, that was that was repealed, and 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 here we are, you know. Uh, and could that happen to marriage equality? Absolutely, because right now it's a federal issue. So if if the federal government and a, a future President Trump or President Ramawase or Nikki Haley or whoever uh, decides to, to to you know do what they can to to tinker with things, and Supreme Court continues to grow and and much more conservative, there there are plenty of reasons as to why they would be able to repeal the federal. Uh, defense of marriage, and then all, all of a sudden, yeah, the the state constitution we have here, the, the language is still there. It, it is. There's really just an injunction that could be overturned, I suppose, by another judge at some point. It's pretty brittle uh, yeah. in terms of what is allowing us to have marriage equality here. I want to go back though to that time when Prop Eight passed. Marriage equality did not resume in this state as soon as Judge Walker issued that 136-page decision. Right. Why did he not let that happen? Well, it, it went through an a, 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 um, appeal, I believe, right? I think that, that when that ended up happening there is that... Um, oh, it went all the way gave, to the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah, he gave, he gave the opponents, uh, you know, to, to, to get a ruling from the Ninth Circuit, and then it just continued to get appealed. So, so even... And that's why there were these uh, exciting little moments when we, we gathered together to... Uh, to celebrate that the uh, Supreme Court was going to hear it because we were making these incremental steps. But they really couldn't get out of the gate then because it was still a federal issue. Yep. And then the Supreme Court ended up saying, well, we shouldn't have heard this anyway. And okay. so they let Walker's decision stand. So again, what we're holding on to here is marriage equality by virtue of an injunction, not really anything more no. meaningful beyond that, which right. brings us to where we are today in this effort to try to get rid of Proposition 8 once and for all to get that language out of the Constitution. Can you explain to our listeners, though, how this goes down? It, it started in the Assembly with a resolution, right? Yes, yes. So um, Assemblymember Evan Lowe uh, and Senator Scott Wiener, uh, they came together, Senate, uh, Senate and the, the, the Assembly, uh, to put AR-5 uh, on the ballot. And it was a, a tough 
uh, thing to get it on the ballot to begin with. You know, there were there were plenty of conservative assembly members and senators who did not want to vote on the on the issue. Uh, it brought back a lot of issues of, of well, you know, like the, uh, the religious rights and so forth. So it was it was an issue. It, it was tough to get on the ballot to begin with. Um, and, but but it's there now and it will be on the ballot for next November. And, and next November is when we will be able to us being the California voters to be able to change that code to remove the language that says that marriage is between one man and one woman. So the first step was it had to get through the state legislative process because it wasn't a voter that initiated this like Prop 8. It wasn't right. an outside group. It was a, it was a group of legislators. And right. so now the question will be asked again, how is this going to be different than with Prop 8? Well, we have about a year to find out. And <laughs> what, one, of, one of the major things that, that, that I'm afraid of is that our LGBT community will become complacent uh, and not be vocal about what may happen you know that nowadays we have um issues here in uh like roseville or down in southern california with school districts that are getting very um they're getting very tough on lgbt rights you know there, there's been efforts to ban books critical race theory in some school districts and you know and this kind of came up through that during the pandemic with mass mandates you know that that whole energy of trying to combat things at a very local level, which is extremely smart. You know, the, the, these individuals have become part of school boards. And from there you get into the legislature and so forth. So, so it's very, um, it's very scary to me that, that right now, I know that there's pastors around the, the, the state who are actively preparing for next November, mega churches left and right. You know, are the gay bars down the street doing anything? No, they're working. They're worried about the, the Palm Springs parties that I'm going to in New Year's. I'm going to chop it up about this Prop 8 because people need to understand that that is just as important as as anything right now in regards to our rights. I'm single. I'd like to get married someday, but I may not in a year if this passes. And it would be because of complacency. So just to clarify, if we lose this vote in November, that isn't going to do away with marriage equality. But it's going to send a pretty strong message, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Yes, very much so. Because at the timing, at the, it, it, this goes back to, to when Obama was elected. It goes back to the timing of the same if President Trump is elected again that, 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 that same time. And then we don't in California show that we are fighting for our, our, our rights. We've lost the game. We've lost the ball game at that point because we, are, we, we can guarantee that, that Clarence Thomas will retire. A new, a new conservative will be plopped in there, you know, and they'll, they'll continue to, to chip away at the rights of, of, of liberal California or of the, of the country in general. So it is really scary. And I'm, I'm motivated to, to talk about it because of the fact that, if, that, that during the last decade, we had these, these fits and, and starts and going to the Supreme Court and then appeal and back and forth. I, think, I know that we have that energy to do that again. But the runway is short. It is. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's super risky. I, I think one of the things that frustrates me about our community is that we tend to be pretty lackadaisical. Um, maybe even self-centered sometimes and not looking beyond it, it, with important issues like this. You cannot, right. we cannot, there's not a person in our community who can afford to sit back and do nothing around this particular initiative. It needs to be an all hands on deck call. And right. so what can our listeners do? Definitely be, it goes, it goes back to supervisor Harvey Mill. You know, let people know that you are out. 
you know, and that and it goes back, you know, here we are in the holiday season, you know, people at work need to know. I, I so they focus family and friends, people that you know, if you don't know that, that if they don't know that you're out, now's the time, you know, I, I know, I know that it, it may not be invoked to actually have these, these conversations with people, but you have to, because that way people know that there's somebody that they know that would be affected by something like this, right? So friends and family, make, make, make sure that, that, that these conversations are happening with them. Those who can be out at work should do so. I work at Google. I'm part of their Pride at Google uh, employee resource group. I put together the, the Pride contingent for them. This, this I helped with that this uh, this summer. I'll do it again next year. And, and it's groups like that that need to have these conversations now. You know, also mobilize because those individuals have money, right? And 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 that will come into play when it comes down to whenever the campaign does start to to, to repeal uh, that language. They're going to need money, uh, and they're going to need people power. Not I, I use I avoid the term manpower, but people power. So your friends and family, your work, and then your own feet. Like people need to go out there and knock on doors or uh, fold uh, uh, envelopes, whatever it takes to, to to be able to get that word out. Because we cannot be complacent, you know. And and there's going to be a lot of energy, uh, especially if Trump is the nominee. You just know that that's going to that, that, that this is going to be one of the many ornaments they hang on their nasty Christmas tree of things that they're going to be taking off day one, Trump says, right? The, the first day he's dictator. Yep. All he needs is one day. Yep, that's very, very true. And of course, voting cannot be underestimated either. The power of a vote and every vote is important. If people are not registered to vote, how do they go about doing that at this point? Sure. Well, you know, I, I mentioned at the top that I uh, that I ran for the California State Assembly, and for for several reasons, I decided to close my account. One of the reasons was is because it was very difficult for me to partner with a fundraising consultant, because in in a campaign there are consultants who interact between the candidate and lobbyists, because that's where the big money is. Now, my race was like nine people, so. And I started early and and I reached out to all the consultants in Sacramento and none of them wanted to work with me. They either had too many friends in the race, they were already working with other candidates, or they wanted to stay out. And that was every consultant in Sacramento. Now, this was in August. And my brother, God bless his soul, he he was on his deathbed during that time. Mm -hmm. And rather than continue calling throughout the state for fundraising consultants, I realized it would be best to close my campaign, focus on what I can do on my own, and focus on my family. And so I became very disillusioned with the political process. And for the first time in my life, I was like, why do I want to even vote? When I can see that behind the curtain here, lobbyists, fundraisers, they're the ones that kept me they, they, they kept me out of that of that campaign. It's not like that anymore because we have to be able to vote. We have to be able to, to I have to be able to go out there in, in March and then again in, in November to make sure that 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 my rights in the future aren't um, aren't affected by my own complacency. So what listeners can do very simply, wherever they're listening in California, register to vote dot ca dot gov i'll say it again register to vote at or dot ca dot gov this is a california secretary of state's uh, website this is where a resident can vote but you can also check your registration so in case you've moved in the past few years you can't remember if you voted or, or didn't go to that website and you'll be able to either update your registration or register to vote perfect If you missed that website, we will put it on our own website at OutBeatNews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page and you can check your status as a registered voter. And if you're not registered, you can register to vote and get prepared for this very important decision. And there will be several others 
It's not just this one thing that people need to be paying attention to um, this coming November. Lex, where can people go to learn more about you or follow your work? Sure. Well, right now I'm on threads. I'll, I'll say that one first. So at Alexius Lazar, my full name, A-L-E-X-I-A-S-L-A-Z-A-R. Also on X, formerly Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Perfect. Lex Lazar, thank you so much for sharing your time with us tonight, giving us the history of marriage equality and encouraging all of us to get off our feet and get involved. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. And yes, we should all get up and, and make sure that we, uh, we have these rights for the future for, you know, for ourselves and, and for people that we love. I couldn't have said it better myself. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Outbeat News in Depth here on KRCB-FM. I'm Greg Moralia. Well, just before Christmas last month, Pope Francis surprised the world with a declaration stating that the Catholic Church could recognize and bless same-sex relationships. The declaration was clear about this not meaning marriage, but it is a significant shift from the past, especially considering, for example, how feverishly the Catholic Church supported Proposition 8, which we just talked about. Here to explain exactly what this new directive from the Pope means is Robert Schein. He's the Associate Director of New Ways Ministry. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here and to talk about some good news from the Vatican that we heard uh, last month around recognition of same-sex couples and their relationships. But before we get talking about that, talk a little bit about New Ways Ministries for our listeners who may not be familiar with it. Uh, Well, New Ways Ministry is a Catholic outreach for uh, equity, inclusion, and justice for LGBTQ people um, in the Catholic Church primarily, uh, but also in society. Um, And we were founded in 1977 by a nun, Sister Janine Gramick, who's still involved, and um, a priest, Father Robert Nugent, uh, who, who has since passed away. And their goal was to use education as a tool to um, help Catholics understand the experiences of, at the time, primarily lesbian, gay, but now all LGBTQ plus people mm-hmm. uh, and, and the need to build inclusive practices. Uh, well, the Catholic Church, like other organized religions, has evolved over time. Um, I've certainly witnessed a lot of evolution, albeit slow. Uh, but what have you witnessed in your lifetime that sort of stands out to you as pivotal moments of change? Sure. Uh, I, I've witnessed a lot, um, particularly in the last few years. Um, you know, I uh, came of age uh, with John Paul II and Benedict mm-hmm. XVI as popes. And, um, you know, the messaging was was quite negative under them. Um, people were you know, some, some theologians and pastoral ministers faced censure and um, just sort of a climate of fear around even talking about gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I would say in the last 10 years, uh, 10, 15 years that I've been involved in this work, um, the biggest change is that you can talk about LGBTQ issues openly in, in many places now. You know, parishes are starting ministries Catholic schools have begun saying, how can we support students? Um, there's a lot of work left to do, but the the conversation is happening, um, and it's now even happening at the Vatican and the highest levels. So that that you know we have a lot more we need to do, but but the conversation is happening. Yeah, I think that's a great point you make. At least we can have a conversation. 
mm-hmm. right about it, which is which is really important. But it's always kind of uh, mystified me, I guess, is might be the word. No church, including the Catholic Church, has ever been required to perform a marriage ceremony that it doesn't condone, right? Uh, and marriage, of course, is a marriage ceremony, and a church isn't required to get married uh, in this country. But why do you think churches in general have been so resistant to the idea of marriage equality when it really doesn't legally mandate them to do anything? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I don't know. You know, you'd kind of have to ask the bishops why they're so invested. Um, but I think what they might say is that the church uh, advocates for, you know, what we would call in Catholic terminology, the common good, that we want a society where everyone can flourish. And the the more traditional vision of, of Catholic teaching is that, you know, uh, a man-woman marriage is, is a part of that flourishing. But what I would say is that, well, in the U.S., the bishops have, have been very opposed. You know, Catholics in the pews overwhelmingly support marriage equality. Mm-hmm. And we are also concerned with the common good, that everyone can have their rights respected and have everything they need to live. And we just understand that actually the Catholic tradition supports uh, equal marriage rights as part of making sure that we have a just just society. Hmm. Well, again, promising, promising for the future anyway. And this pope is very different, as you've already mentioned, uh, in terms of wanting to have a conversation. He's made some, some significant statements, I think, that are very different than what we heard from John Paul II and from Pope Benedict. Uh, talk about the recent steps you've seen him make in terms of blessing same-sex relationships. What, how did that happen? Yeah, so this this announcement that uh, priests and other pastoral ministers can bless LGBTQ couples, I think it took many people by surprise. Um, but this has been an issue that for, I would say, the last three or four years has gained new traction um, because in Germany and in Belgium and a few other places, the bishops and priests there have started to uh, openly perform such blessings in some circumstances, and it's become a point of tension with the Vatican. Um, And so I think Pope Francis felt that, um, you know, the church had to say something about what what a course of action would be on these blessings because they had become so divisive. Mm-hmm. The the more affirming Catholics were starting to do them, more conservative Catholics were outraged. And I think for trying to maintain some unity and good feelings, the Pope tried to uh, chart a middle course uh, by opening up, you know, the possibility um, but but not mandating or or formalizing it. So what is in his message, what does this really mean for gay Catholics? I would say the the blessings and you know approval, but also Pope Francis's larger uh, legacy, what it means for LGBTQ Catholics is that um, we have a rightful, Place in the church that's now being recognized. And uh, even if LGBTQ Catholics have 
and our allies have more desire, you know, desire for greater change. Um, at the very least, Pope Francis has said uh, everyone should be welcomed in the church. You know, the phrase that he used at World Youth Day this summer was todos, 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 everyone, everyone, everyone. And that's really the vision he um, he has for the church. Everyone show up and then we'll figure out the rest of the the more, you know, neurologic issues. But um, he just wants everyone to have a place in the church. So that's one thing. And the second thing is he wants to emphasize uh, God's mercy and the need for the church to accompany people, not to, you know, start with rules and rigidity, but to start with, um, you know, the Catholic institutional church sort of mirroring the wide, all-encompassing embrace that God provides. Um, and changing from focusing on strict doctrine to pastoral accompaniment is, is revolutionary. Um, it, it doesn't mean one or the other isn't important, but it's sort of what's the first step you take and mm -hmm. what's the lens through you read everything else. Mm -hmm. It's going to be challenging, though, isn't it? Because as you mentioned, the opinions about this and, and just the opinions in general about accepting LGBTQ plus people varies in the church a great deal. Um, I, I have to think here locally, we have an Archbishop Cordelione in San Francisco who sort of led the charge for the Catholic Church for Proposition 8. Uh, my belief is he was promoted because Prop 8 passed, but that's just an opinion. Uh, and he came out with some pretty strong statements right after the Pope did in response to this uh, that were published in the paper, really making it fairly clear that he did not agree with it at all. So how do you think that's going to reconcile? How is the Pope going to be able to hold people accountable who are leaders in the church and, and outwardly defying what he is saying. Mm -hmm. Is it possible for him to, to have that level of control, do you think? Yes. Well, um, there's a certain paradox with Pope Francis. Um, you know, on the one hand, he's trying to get uh, church leaders to be more inclusive and more focused on, on helping people rather than excluding them. Um, but at the same time, at a wider level, he's trying to decentralize the church. You know, over the last century, century and a half, all this power has focused in Rome. And it wasn't always that way. In the past, local bishops and even and priests and other church leaders had more authority to um, enact the teachings of the church in, in the ways they saw prudent for the places where they were. And so one of Francis's moves has been to lessen the Vatican's power over um, bishops and other church leaders, um, which I think is a good thing. But what it does create is a situation where he's emphasizing inclusion and other bishops are more empowered to say, we'd like to do something a little differently. Um, I did see Archbishop Cordelione's statement, and he's correct that the Pope's you know, declaration um, on blessings doesn't change teachings on, on marriage. Uh, but what it does do is give pastoral ministers a lot of freedom to perform the blessings without really needing the approval of, of the, the bishop. So I think, you know, priests in the Bay Area could 
certainly be doing this these blessings um, even if the archbishop is sort of upset because the Vatican has has said you know we we emphasize the freedom um, of of clergy and religious uh, people to to do what they what their conscience compels them to do on this issue. So I have to ask the question. I mean, do you think that it's and I don't really know the culture in in, in the relationship between priests and bishops, and maybe it's just vastly different in every case. But if a, an archbishop says, uh-uh, we're, we're not playing this game, we're not doing this, is it likely that a local priest is going to go against that? Well, <laughs> I think it depends on the bishop. I think it depends on the priest. I think it depends on the location. I don't know that I have a good answer because the, you know, I think there's a misconception in the church that it's well, we do have a hierarchy. Uh, you know, priests have rights um, against bishops, and bishops should be inclined to not just have a legal but a familial almost relationship with their priests. So I don't know that I can answer because it's so situation sure. dependent. But what I would say is um, I think there are priests who even with more conservative bishops will start to take risks and, and perform the blessings. Well, let's, I'll use a great example. Um, maybe we could speculate what this would be. So in San Francisco, I mentioned the archbishop exists, but then there's also a parish in the heart of the Castro in the gay neighborhood there, the most Holy Redeemer church, which is completely affirming and welcoming, welcoming. Um, it's, it's led by a, a pastor there who's Father Matt, who's amazing. So what does this what does this really mean? If you have an, a, a, a priest who is supportive and affirming of providing these blessings for a gay couple, what does this mean? Are they going to be able to have a ceremony in the church that might resemble something like a marriage ceremony? So the the declaration. Um does place some restrictions, I guess you could call them, on, on what these blessings could look like. So they have to be spontaneous, although it's not clarified what that means. Um, and they can't look like uh, something that would be a wedding. So it says there's no clothing, gestures, or words that one could mistake the blessing for a marriage ceremony. And they also, the blessings can't be performed um, in conjunction with, say, a civil marriage or a civil union. So there are certain restrictions. Um, but as I mentioned, the, the real spirit of the document is that priests and other, other ministers have freedom to figure out, how should I do this? So the document says, Good places for a blessing might be on a pilgrimage, at a shrine. Um, you know, it. I think there's going to be a, a tension, a creative tension about what this actually looks like in practice. But the Vatican's emphasizing, you know, the people on the ground know best and they'll figure it out. And we kind of trust, you know, trust Catholics a little more to... Um, Abide by abide by the declaration, but also figure out what's needed 
in, in a given context. So I don't know what Most Holy Redeemer, which is a wonderful parish, will do. I don't know. You know, we have a list on the New Ways Ministry website of dozens and dozens of Catholic parishes in the U.S. who provide LGBTQ ministry and, and some kind of public affirmation. Um, and I imagine at least some of them will begin to offer blessings in, um, you know, potentially in the church or in a more formal way um, as part of their larger efforts mm -hmm. to, to welcome LGBTQ people and families and allies. Yeah, I think it's, I think it is really amazing. Um, and I'm not trying to discount what happened here because I, I, do, I do think it's significant. And for couples who've been together and maybe struggled with having to reconcile who they are with the acceptance of their faith and were forced to make a choice to accept themselves and, and then maybe step away from their faith, this is a, this is an invitation to walk back in uh, and to bring your husband or wife with you and, and then have the church recognize it in some way. I mean, I guess I can envision, you know, maybe at a pride celebration or in conjunction with a pride event that there's, you know, a, a group that comes together and, and is able to have a, a ceremony of some sort that could end up being very life-changing in some ways and, and reconciling for folks. So I, I do, I don't want to take anything away from this because I think it's fascinating and I think it's really important. Um, I just think the the dynamic between the bishops and those who seem to be most resistant to this in the Vatican, and then the bishops and then the priests who seem to be much more open to change is really interesting. Um, and it's a and it's a dynamic there that's an obstacle. Mm -hmm. If we could get rid of all the bishops and just have the priests talking to the Pope, I think we'd be in a lot better shape, perhaps. Um are you familiar with the old Catholic Church? Uh, very briefly, yeah. I know a little bit about them. Really interesting. I had a chance to meet a bishop and a priest who are part of that faith tradition. Um, mm -hmm. They minister to the um, Gay Police Officers Action League in Boston. And it's fascinating to me the traditions that they support, and yet they're open to ordaining women, openly gay people, mm -hmm. they can get married. It's There's a very sort of modern uh, administration of it. And of course, it's there is no centralized organization like the Vatican that oversees it. Uh, but it's just, it's just interesting to me. But I, I would like our listeners to know a little bit more about New Ways Ministries um, and the space that you've created for them, because I think that's really an opportunity as well. Where can people go to learn more and find that list of affirming churches that you spoke of? So uh, everything about us is at our website, um, newwaysministry.org. Uh, and there you can find not only our list of LGBTQ-friendly parishes and also Catholic colleges, um, but we have information about our publications, which include um, a book, A Home for All, that, for instance, explains why Catholics can and should support LGBTQ rights uh, or, or resources on how to start a ministry at your church. Um, you know, if you want to learn more about everything the Pope has said on LGBTQ issues, we've got it all documented there. Um, and then we do a lot of educational workshops, talks, programs um, for all kinds of groups, Catholic groups, but also secular LGBTQ groups. So 
Um, if you're interested in, in having a conversation with us about how we could support local work that, that folks are doing, please reach out. Um, you know, the, the Blessings Declaration uh, said, God never turns away anyone who approaches him. And um, I think New Ways Ministry, we've been, we've been sort of living that for a while. You know, we, we, we welcome inquiries and we'll do our best to help you. Fantastic. We've been talking with Associate Director Robert Schein from New Ways Ministry. Robert, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. And if you missed the website for New Ways Ministry, we'll have it on our own website at outbeatnews.com. Just click on show notes at the top of the page. Well, that brings us to the end of our hour. Be sure to tune in next Sunday night for Outbeat Radio's Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, do have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia. Our shows are available for on-demand play anytime on our website at outbeatnews.com and on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and now on iHeartRadio. Find links to subscribe at outbeatnews.com. I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I give it up to you. You're broken down and tired Of living life on the merry-go-round And you can't find a fighter But I see it in you, so we gon' walk it out Move mountains We gon' walk it out and move mountains and I rise up, I rise like the day, I rise up, I rise unafraid, I rise up, and I do it a thousand eight times again. And I rise up, I like the waves, I rise up, in spite of the ache, Support for Outbeat Radio on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Rocky, the free-range chicken, and Rosie, the original organic chicken. Air-chilled, non-GMO, locally raised right here in Sonoma County with no antibiotics ever. More information is available at rockyandrosie.com. You're listening to 104.9 KRCB-FM Roanoke Park and KRCG-FM Windsor, Sonoma County's NPR station. It's 9 p.m. Stay with us. Beale Street Caravan is next.